Well, please have your Bible open in the 8th chapter of John's Gospel. As you're doing that, just a small technical point here. Um, many of you will have a Bible that will have a note in it somewhere about these particular verses. Uh, the reason that note is there is because over the centuries, some have sought to make a dispute out of these particular verses. The reason being is that lots of the early Greek manuscripts of John's Gospel don't contain verses 1 to 11, as we have them in our English Bibles. And many of the early church fathers don't mention them whenever they make comments about John's Gospel either. However, these verses are found in ancient documents. There are uh, what they call fragments of manuscripts which contain them. And... Over the centuries, biblical scholars have all come to the conclusion uh, that even though these verses are absent from certain manuscripts, there is sufficient evidence to include them in the canon of Scripture. And uh, I, I, did, I did a quick check, and I personally couldn't find a single translation of the Bible that many people might read in the English language that does not include these verses. Although many uh, translators do have a little footnote somewhere on the page just to acknowledge that there are certain manuscripts that don't include them. Um, but over the years, all the tests that are routinely applied by Bible translators to verify the authenticity of something as being scripture have all come to the conclusion that these verses should indeed be included in our Bibles. And so we have them available for us. Just before we get into the actual events that we're focused on here, where Jesus has this woman brought to her, let me just point something out, which is probably something that all of us continually as believers fail to fully grasp and are quite reluctant to acknowledge in many ways. Something perhaps which is maybe one of the weakest and poorest aspects of all of our Christian lives, which actually the, the things right at the start of this passage bring to bear upon us. At, at the end of chapter 7, we find everybody going home for the, for the night. Everybody went to his own house. It's evening. People are tired. They all go home. Except for Jesus, who walks out through the city gates, crosses over the, the little Kidron Valley, and makes his way up the slopes of the Mount of Olives. And he'll return from there to Jerusalem the following morning, early. In Luke chapter 22, we read of Jesus on the night before his crucifixion, taking his disciples to the same place, the Mount of Olives, where they would pray. And at verse 39 of Luke 22, we are told that this was something that Jesus was accustomed to doing. He would frequently spend the night on his own in prayer. 
And if he was in Jerusalem or thereabouts, it seems that he had this favourite spot. He could sit or stand on the Mount of Olives and he could overlook Jerusalem. And he could think and he could meditate and he could pray. And pray over the city and pray over the people. And pray for the ministry that his father had sent him to do. And we find ourselves marvelling, as we should, at the things that Christ was able to say. The answer that he gives these men in verse 7 is just astounding in its simplicity, yet the depth of the wisdom that he displays. We find ourselves marvelling at the things that Jesus is able to do. But how slow we are to want to learn the lessons that he teaches us about the importance of spending time in prayer. Putting ourselves out to pray. And we ignore at our peril the place that Jesus puts on prayer and the place that prayer has in his life and ministry. And don't say, yeah, but that's Jesus. Well, yes, it was, but we're told to follow in his footsteps. We're told that he is our pattern and our example. And where he has gone, we should be going. And the way he prayed is how we should pray. And I just point that out to you before we get to the nitty-gritty of this particular text. That on the back of it all, and as you marvel at the wisdom that Christ displays... It comes on the back of having spent a night in fellowship with his father. Perhaps we long for all of the excitement that we assume his disciples must often have felt being in the presence of Christ. But we don't want the painstaking discipline of taking time to be holy. Speaking often with the Lord in secret alone. Well, let's get to our main passage. While the others are all in their beds, Jesus is on the Mount of Olives looking across the valley, praying for them and seeking the Father's wisdom, seeking strength and grace for the following day. And he comes back into the city, it's early in the morning. And he goes straight back to the temple. That's where he knows he'll find the people. That's probably where the people know know where they'll find him. And there he goes and he sits down. And immediately he's teaching, teaching, teaching. No wonder he needed to pray. And we're going to see first of all a group of men who confront him. And we're going to call them the cruel conspirers. In verses 1 to 6, the cruel conspirers, the scribes and the Pharisees. You have to hand it to this bunch. They are at least persistent in their opposition of Jesus. And some of the schemes that they come up with to try and overthrow him have a considerable semblance of intelligence. And uh, as their schemes go to try and catch Jesus out, this is actually quite a clever one. It's also very cruel. And pernicious, however. Who were scribes and Pharisees? Well, the scribes in many ways were kind of the lawyers of their day. They were the ones who wrote down and tabulated all of the laws that the people were supposed to be keeping. 
supposedly all thoroughly and reliably based upon the Old Testament law. And hand in hand with them were the Pharisees who loved to be the ones who professed to be keeping all of these laws. The Pharisees were a bunch of self-righteous men. A few of them, no doubt, had a genuine and honest desire to know and please God. But for the most part, well, it seems they just enjoyed the status and the privilege that that position gave them. They, they enjoyed the deference and the reputation that was afforded them by the rest of society. They just liked the rank and privilege of, the, of it all. And these two made up a significant part of the religious leaders of the day. And these men are working hand in hand to protect their own interests, which the ministry of Christ is severely threatening. Jesus is bringing interpretation and and application of the law of God that, well, it goes against everything that these men stand for. And he's infuriating them with the kinds of things that he's saying. The kind of teaching that he gave on the Sermon on the Mount, for example, that's not what they want the people to be hearing. And so because he threatens everything, because for Jesus the law of God is all about the heart, but these men just have hearts of stone, they're acting against him and they're opposing him at every point. And again and again and again, if you're familiar with the Gospels, you'll recognise this constant opposition and this confrontation between this group of men and the Lord Jesus Christ. And on this occasion, they believe that they've got Jesus in the perfect Catch 22, where no matter what Jesus says, no matter which way he chooses to go with this one, they've got him. They've got an accusation they can bring against him. They've set what they believe to be the perfect baited trap that's going to catch Jesus out no matter which way he turns. So Jesus is teaching in the temple and up they stride with this unnamed woman in their clutches. They declare her to be guilty of adultery. The particular Greek word that they use implies that she herself was a married woman who'd been caught in adultery. And they say she's been caught in the very act. There's absolutely no doubt about the guilt of this woman. And here she is thrust in front of Christ. Now are they telling the truth about this woman's adultery? Almost certainly. She's guilty of the things they say. Has she been drawn in by their scheming somehow into this situation? Highly likely. Is she maybe someone who's been known to have a reputation and actually they exploit her and only now have they chosen to present her as guilty to do something about it? Very possibly that's what's happened. And she's exploited by them. And they present her and her crime to Jesus and quote the Bible in hoping to use it against him. So if Jesus is seen to reject the law of Moses... Well, they will rightly judge him to be a 
a hypocrite and a heretic. And they can arrest him and it's all over. If he agrees with the law and he agrees to this woman being stoned, well, this great man of compassion and mercy, his reputation will be dashed and his, his ministry will be shipwrecked if he says this woman should be stoned to death. And he places himself against the Romans because the Romans forbid the Jews to execute anybody by stoning because that would undermine Roman authority. If anyone's going to execute anyone, it's the Romans and they do it by crucifixion, not by stoning. So whichever way Jesus goes on this one, we've got him. He's in big trouble. The Bible provides additional comment about this group of men who have this woman that they have no genuine interest, no genuine interest in the sinfulness of the act that this lady has committed. They have no interest in prescribing justice out of a godly reverence for the law of God. They have no genuine interest that the honour of God should be maintained amongst his people. Nothing of that sort. They're just fishing for something anything that they can bring as an accusation against Christ. That's their sole motive in this situation that we're presented with here. You have to ask a question, you see. If they are so concerned about God's law, if they're, concer- if they're so concerned about God's ways, where's the man she was with? Because if you read the law... Both of them should be stood in front of Christ. Both of them deserve the death penalty. Where's the man? Conveniently ignored? Conveniently forgotten? Or just part of the plot? And he's done his bit, thank you very much. Get the woman here. It's probably what's been going on. These are simply cruel, calculating conspirers who they are here in these men is a religion devoid of God a religion with no love no mercy no grace in these religious men and I'm sure that plays a significant part in what Jesus will say to the woman later as we'll see and they bring this woman to her and Jesus does something very strange at the end of verse 6. He, he stoops down and starts writing on the ground with his finger as though he did not hear. Well, there is so much speculation that's been written about what possibly Jesus might have written, why he wrote it, what he was doing. Well, I could speculate with you, but we simply do not know. And that's how I'm going to leave it with you. We do not know what he wrote. And we do not know exactly why he did it. But again, you can speculate if you wish. But we're not told. But it's as if he just wants to not give them their moment. 
and, and he's, going to, he's going to take hold of this situation as so often he does and he's going to turn the trajectory of it, of it right around as only he can. And everything that they're hoping to achieve and the whole momentum of where they think they're going, Christ is just going to turn it completely around and just take the whole thing in a totally different place. And he does it to begin with by just ignoring what's being asked, stooping down and writing something in the ground, and then stands and speaks. So here we have Christ with these cruel conspirers and this poor, embarrassed, humiliated woman who's being placed in front of him. What will he do? Well, what he does is he says something quite remarkable and he convicts their conscience. And he convicts their conscience in verses 7 to 9. They continue asking him, he stands up, let he who is without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. And those who heard it being convicted by their conscience slowly walked away. Now the law required, you can read about it in the opening verses of Deuteronomy chapter 17 for example, the law required that the accusers should throw the first stone. That was the the requirement of the law. But then Jesus produces this. Okay, who's the sinless one? Who can be the first one to throw? Such people as would be stoned to death would be guilty of a marked degree of sin that was not found in other people. In fact, it's probably helpful just to see something that's said back in that chapter in Deuteronomy 17. Um, Let me just point this out. Talking, talking about this whole situation of uh, the sentences that are being uh, given, it says at the end of verse 12 of Deuteronomy 17, So you shall put away the evil from Israel. So the situation that is brought to us there in Deuteronomy 17 is that whatever this horrendous crime is that deserves the death penalty, this is something that is not typical that's taking place in Israel. But most of the people in Israel would never dream of committing a sin like this because they're the Lord's people and they're seeking to go the Lord's way and follow him. And so when this kind of crime does happen, when this kind of, kind of situation does arise, it has to be dealt with like this to keep the sin out of Israel. And so the, the impression that you get there, you see, is that This Old Testament civil law is designed so that genuine sinfulness like this, which violates God's moral law, can be brought to light and duly punished. But it's all intended that this should happen within a general framework of righteousness within the nation. So that that righteousness may be maintained. And that's the framework of the law in the Old Testament. 
that it is from a perspective of righteousness that this punishment is given. In the same way that we deserve God's punishment from his perspective of righteousness. It's because he is righteous that that sin has to be punished. And, And that parallel is in the law in the Old Testament. That from the righteous nature of the nation of Israel, sin has to be punished. Now that's not the situation these men are in. They're up to unrighteousness, up to their necks. The idea is that the people out of a heart for God and all that is good and pleasing to him would be horrified at such iniquity within the nation. But Jesus knows that this corrupt bunch in front of him are not of that order. These are not men who are walking in godly righteousness, who are seeking to rid the city of this great evil. They're as wicked as the woman. Probably more so in other ways. And so that's not the situation these men are in. These men are rotten to the core. They're using this poor woman as a scapegoat for their own political gain. That's their only concern here. And Jesus can see through all of this charade for what it is. This isn't a court of law. This is not the proper administration of justice that these men are seeking. And these religious hypocrites need to be stopped in their tracks. Anyone who claims to be without sin, anyone who is judging this whole situation from a position of righteousness, you throw the first stone. And here's the challenge that Jesus throws down. If there's going to be a public hearing that you want me to adjudicate over, let's all put ourselves in the dock one by one. What about you? What do you have to answer for? Never mind this woman. What about you and you and you and you? What do you all have to answer for? Let's have the court of law that you seek. That's what Jesus is saying. Maybe there are some of you over there and you should be standing here alongside the woman too, Jesus is saying. Maybe it's not just her. What about all of you? Now Jesus is not taking the easy way out. He's not trying to wriggle out of making this choice. He's confronting the scheming of these wicked men head on. They're up to their necks in it. And Christ's words do their work. And they strike at these men's conscience. And that's exactly what he intended to do. And that's what Christ does. That's what the gospel does. It strikes at the sinful conscience. And it convicts of sin. And it happens in these men. And it's the older men who recognise first the position that they're in. It's the older ones, the wiser ones. Maybe the ones that perhaps were not so keen on all of this in the first place anyway. And they can see. Their own conscience convicts them. Who am I to throw the stone? 
And the oldest one walks away. And the next oldest one looks at him. He walks away. One by one, every single accuser disappears. Cut to the heart because of their own sinfulness. The gospel does that. And they realise that they can't possibly involve, be involved in the administration of God's judgement over this woman's sin. When they stand there just as guilty as she is. And they disappear. And they just melt away. You see, they were never out to get justice. They were just out to get Jesus. And they've gone. We need to remember the principle that's put before us here. There's a lot said in the Bible about having a judgmental spirit towards other people. That is not the same as exercising discernment over certain situations. But having a judgmental spirit towards other people, the Bible says a lot about being all too ready to see the faults in others. Being all too ready to point out the faults in others. Being all too ready to talk about the faults that you can see in others. Whilst not for one moment taking heed to yourself. You really do look ridiculous when you're pointing out the specks in the eyes of all the others when you've got a six foot length of two by two sticking out your own eye. Make sure that's never you. That, of course, does not mean that we ought not to correct one another if we see someone caught up in sin. But be careful of your own spiritual state when you do that. And don't appoint yourself to go out and try and find fault in others. And this doesn't mean that church discipline can't ever be exercised. But what a position of humility we must all be in whenever we have to do that. And what self-examination must always, always take place whenever we're in a position where we need to do that. What a high level of self-searching ought to be taking place within each of us continually and unceasingly before God and before his word. But what about me? But what about me? I might be so, so ready to point something out about him or her, but what about me? That's something these scribes and Pharisees have never done. But Jesus forced them to do it today. And they disappear. We see here the work of God's law in the sinful heart. To strike at the conscience, to convict of sin. But what the law can't do is cleanse our conscience. And what the law can't do is free us from that sin. But Christ can. And that's why he came. So we had these cruel conspirers, but now it's just Jesus and this woman. And what we're going to discover in Christ is the most remarkable compassion. And we see this compassionate Christ left alone with this woman. In verses 10 and 11. 
what might be going through this woman's mind. What's he going to say? What's he going to do? Is she guilty of the, of the immorality of which she's been accused? The only way you can read this passage is to say, yep, yeah, she's guilty. But not only that, she has been exploited. Perhaps coerced, perhaps encouraged into a situation where she'd be readily caught and exposed and then publicly humiliated. Not that that excuses adultery. It doesn't excuse her actions. But it's part of the whole picture. And she stands before Christ in all of her guilt and in all of her shame. And we have these glorious words in verse 11. Where are all these people who accuse you? By the mouth of two or three witnesses, something must be established. There's no one here. So I don't accuse you either. I don't condemn you. I don't condemn you. How are we to understand that? Is Jesus going soft on sin today? Is he saying to her that her sin doesn't really matter after all? This is one verse which today is frequently quoted by those who would say that they are Christians and who are fully involved in the LGBT movement. They'll quote this verse. I don't condemn you, Jesus said, to a woman guilty of adultery, they say. Of course, they never mention his fi final five words. They never mention that bit, go and sin no more. They forget that bit conveniently. But this is a verse they'll frequently quote. There is a group of people who ascribe themselves as the Christian gay movement. So, does that mean we can also have the Christian Adulterers Association? Is that okay? Is it? Can we have the Christian Fraudsters Fellowship? Is that, is that fine? Because Jesus doesn't condemn us. So it doesn't matter. Is that what Jesus is teaching here? Do you really think? Do you really think that's what Jesus is saying? Come on. You need to remember, read Matthew 5, read Matthew 19. Jesus speaks very forthrightly on the issues of sinfulness and sexual immorality. Speaks very forthrightly. Doesn't hold back on the law there. But how are we, how are we to understand this? Let's ask a few more questions. Here's a question. Did Jesus say... That her sin doesn't matter. No. Did Jesus say that her sins are forgiven? No. Is there any indication from this that she repented? No. 
What's going on? He has compassion on this poor wretch of a woman. A compassion that was not shown to her by the scribes and the Pharisees. And he shows her mercy. I don't condemn you. Here's how you understand this this phrase that Jesus said. One day, Jesus will return again. And when he does, he will return as the judge of all the earth. And that woman, on that day, if she never did repent of her adultery, on that day, she will receive Christ's condemnation. And she will pay for all of her sins in full, in hell, for eternity. If she never repented. But that will be on that day. But Jesus is dealing with this woman on this day. And this day is a day of grace. This day is a day of mercy. This day is a day of compassion. This day is a day when this woman is given the opportunity by Christ to repent and forsake her sins. Because on his first coming into the world, which is what we're reading about in the Bible, it was not to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. That's how we understand this passage. The condemnation is coming, and everybody needs to be warned about it. But the condemnation isn't yet. Although it's certain, it isn't yet. And today is a day of salvation, if you'll turn to Christ. He's come with compassion, and to show mercy, and to seek and to save the lost. There were some, and Christ knew they would never repent of their sins. And so he does condemn them. He does that with the Pharisees. Read the woes that Jesus pours out of them towards the end of Matthew's Gospel. Because he knows these are men who are never going to repent. These are men who are never going to turn. These are men who are lost for all eternity. But to others he shows this great compassion and grace and mercy. And so he doesn't condemn this woman. He meets her in compassion. He meets her with mercy. And with a plea to repent and forsake her sins. And you must not forget those final five words. He meets this woman and pleads with her, repent and forsake your sins. That's the gospel. Repent of your sins and forsake them. And have and know my mercy and my grace. He's the friend of sinners because he's their only hope. He's the friend of sinners because he offers them hope as he offered hope to this woman on this day. If you know that you're a sinner today, like that woman, today you can come face to face with the Lord Jesus Christ and not be confronted with condemnation, but with grace and with mercy and with compassion. Turn from your sin 
and repent and run to him. And he's ready to meet you with the same grace and compassion that he demonstrated to this woman. You cannot know how this woman responded, but you can decide how you're going to respond. And if that woman did repent, and if she did trust in the Christ who would die in her place at Calvary and bear away all of her sins, and if she did trust in the Christ who would rise again so that, so that she could have newness of life and forgiveness, then at Christ's second coming, he will not condemn her either. Because if she's in him, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Today is a day of salvation, a day of grace, a day of mercy in Christ. Jesus, what a friend for sinners. Jesus, lover of my soul, Friends may fail me, foes assail me. He, my Saviour, makes me whole. Jesus, I do now receive him. More than all in him I find. He has granted me forgiveness. I am his and he is mine. Hallelujah. What a Saviour. Hallelujah, what a friend, saving, helping, keeping, loving. He is with me to the end. Do you know him? Do you know his compassion? Do you know his grace? Do you know his mercy? You can know it today before it's too late.